will be um, similar, although different, from last week as we talked about the cost of discipleship. And we really focused on no turning back. Today, this cost of discipleship. Hello, you're listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast. Whether you're at work, driving in your car, or getting your workout on, we hope and pray that what you hear today will fill your spirit. Come, join us as we walk through God's Word together. As we close this particular focus out, not exhaustively, just this time around, we're going to be looking at the demands of discipleship. We live in a time, in a society, in a world where it is believed that you can make up how and what it means to live for Jesus. We have people that are calling themselves believers, Christians, based on a standard that they created, based on a mix of things. They have baked their own cake, and it doesn't look good. As a matter of fact, it's not even rising. They have put together something that they are calling following Christ that doesn't look anything or looks a little bit like it. And I want to show us today from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33, I want to show you today that the cost of the discipleship journey must be a thought-through decision if you are going to walk with Jesus till the end. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to get into your word. I pray today, God, that we would gain more insight on what it means to be a disciple that our hearts would be convicted where we're not, and that we would move towards obedience that would cause us to be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus. I pray you would remove the obstacles that are either in our mind or physically around us, that we may pay attention to your word, hear it, receive it, and be transformed by it as your spirit works in us. I pray that those who don't know you will think through and make that critical, ultimate, and best decision to follow you if they are not. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Now, as we get started, I want to define discipleship. I want to define it. Because I believe, it is believed, that we, that we believe a disciple is like the special forces of Christianity. You've got your basic Christian, and then you've got a disciple. Because people that get, yeah, yeah, you know, I know discipleship is important, and I, and I really need to focus on discipleship. No, this is not... We're not calling for an elite team of Christian when we say disciple. When the Bible defines disciple, and as we look here, 
Specifically, now I know in the Gospels, you will hear disciples, those who are following Jesus, but then you hear about those that were calling themselves disciples that were leaving or what's happening. Well, the word, the, the, the word disciple we know means learner. But when the Bible, especially in this text, is referring to the term disciple, it's not elite class of Christian. It is Christian versus non-Christian. This is not about whether you are this dedicated Christian. This text and others like it is talking about whether you are a Christian or not. And today, we have too many people walking around saying, I'm a Christian, without fulfilling any of the demands of that discipleship that Christ commands. And so, although you may call yourself that, the fact that you are that would have to be measured by a standard outside of and apart from you. I can call myself an athlete. I can call myself a baller. As a matter of fact, I can even get out on the court looking like one. How many of y'all have got on the court with those that have played the part, looked like a real baller all the way down to the shoes, and got on the court, and everyone stared and said, will you please get off the court? You are not a baller. You look like one or at least you're attempting to, until we get in the game. And so today we want to clarify what it means to be a disciple, which we're clarifying what it means to be a Christian. I know we said all it takes is for you to confess that Christ is Lord and believe in your heart, and then you will be saved. Those are the basics and overall categories and ways in which you do. But Christ, in several places in Scripture, leans in and says, if you will follow me, if you will come after me, if you will, will, will be one of my disciples, here are some demands that must be met. And it is for us to measure but the other thing that I want to show you is that in this text, he likens it to a journey. And on that journey, will you have enough to make it to the desired end of God? I'm going to lean into that more in just a little bit. Are we there yet? How many of you have heard that term when you have gone on a trip? especially if you're driving. Are we there yet? Translated, I'm tired of this. When is this going to be over? I am anticipating our destination, and I don't know when we're going to arrive, but I do know I'm tired of what I'm in right now. And if the person is really tired, usually in the form of a child, although not exclusively. If the person is really tired, you will hear that phrase way too often. 
are we there yet? And it seems like they did not sign up for the kind of or the length of journey, and they want out. I don't want this anymore. And what Jesus does here is he gives us, he tells us, he points us to focus on what will it take to to walk this road with him, to follow him until the end. I do want to start off, though, with this first point that he shares in 1425 is something that Luke does a lot here, and it is this issue of crowds. Luke starts off by says, now great crowds accompanied him. This was typical in Luke when he talks about crowds. Luke is usually referring to many in that group that are neutral people. They've not decided they are there for different reasons that they may not be dedicated to or committed to walking the full journey with Jesus, but something about him or in that part of the journey got their attention and they're going along. When it says they accompanied him, this was in, hey, let's walk along with them. Let's go on with the rest of these that are there. How many know that when you have large crowds, you have a variety of reasons that that crowd is there? And they may not all be there for the reasons that the leaders that are causing that crowd want you to be. See, sometimes in crowds, it can be for the sake of the entertainment of what's happening. Sometimes in that crowd is It can be because of the energy that people are getting from all these people being here. There can be some factor about the leader of that crowd or leaders that are captivating you. Some want to be benefited by what being in this crowd does, either for them physically or what it does for their status. Crowds. If you see a crowd running in the opposite direction of where you are going, I guarantee you, you will at least stop and give pause if you should be doing the same. We live in the day and age of pranks and experiments. You want to do something and see how people respond. Get a group of about 25 people. And y'all all in agreement, and you start bolting and running down the street in the opposite direction, and watch how people respond. Because in the community I'm from, it was run first, ask questions later. If all y'all running, I'm running too. And when I get further on down the line, I'll say, why are we running? That's how I grew up learning. You didn't stand there and ask, why y'all running? Because that may be your last words. But crowds do something to us. 
and they were no different here. Large crowds accompanied him. He had previously in that text, he had been invited to a Sabbath dinner with a Pharisee where he leaned in in a couple of ways in this area when he talked about being a part of a feast, a wedding feast, or being invited to one and being a part of a great banquet, or at least being invited to one. And the excuses that were being made about why I can't because they didn't hold high value in it. And Christ, I mean, and the, and the leader of the, of the feast, of the banquet, went out and found those who valued it highly. And what he was referring to there are those that value coming into fellowship and joining with the one who is hosting, in this case, Jesus, who, 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 who calls us to eventually be in communion and be in that feast and in that final banquet with him and those that didn't see the value in it or in him and said no until they realized it was too late to say yes. And so now when he gets here, he finishes from that banquet and he starts walking. Now remember, this is in the journey section for Luke, that journey to Jerusalem which starts in chapter 9, I believe, and ends in chapter 19. It's what they call the journey narrative. And everything that is happening is in this journey to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem are a couple of things. Number one, in Jerusalem will be his death, so he is making his journey to dying. But that death has a purpose because he is making that journey to death because he knows in that death and in that ultimate resurrection that will be the salvation of those that God is calling. But he also knows that in Jerusalem is, his, is the step to his return home because he will be returning to be with his father as a result of Jerusalem. And so it is this journey, and keep that in your mind, it is this journey motif, and motif. it is this journey toward dying, which leads to that journey toward home. And on that journey, now he starts to lean in to talking to his disciples because he's going to be leaving. And so as he's as the crowds are walking with him, notice Jesus is not walking with the crowd because you will always have to make sure you define following by where Jesus is going, not by where the crowd is going. The crowd was accompanying walking with Jesus. And then the scene changes. He stops, and it says he turns. You know that in Scripture, we've said it before, that whenever large crowds start to amass themselves around Jesus, he usually turns and makes qualifications and demands that thin out the crowd. Jesus was never, you know, one that was captivated, swayed by large groups. We are. 
I've said it before, if, if, if you are doing something and it begins to gather larger and larger crowds, we're thinking of how do I keep this crowd, how do I grow this crowd, how do I maximize this crowd, I'm not thinking about how I thin out this crowd. And Jesus, look at it, when you see large crowds, he usually thinned it out by clarifying the reason for the crowds being there. In essence, it's like he turns around when the crowd gets large and says, why are all y'all here? Why are you here? What brings you to this group? Can you imagine if we ask that in our churches? Places full, every seat. We have rows all the way up to close here, and they're packed in the hall, and they're packed in all the rooms in the back. And I come up and say, why y'all here? That might not last long. See, the issue is he knows in that group that there are some that are not here because they want to follow me. And we've got to remember that. So he turns to them and he gives two demands and a summarized of all the demands that discipleship calls for. And I want us to see it. The first one he says, first demand, refers to your allegiance and your alliances that must be altered if you are going to be a follower of him. First thing he says is, he turns to them and says, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You hear this? That last part is deep. He says, it, they are unable to. You cannot be. It's an if-then phrase. If this is not happening, then this can't happen. We have if-then causes all in our lives. If you are not this, then you can't do this. If you don't do this, then you can't do this. Those of you in school, if you don't do your work, if you don't hand in your homework, if you don't, attend, if you don't attend class, you're not getting a passing grade. Do that enough, you won't even be a student here. We do it at work. If you don't show up on time on a consistent basis, if you don't do your work, if you keep getting negative performance reviews, you will not be an employee. If then clauses happen all the time. Jesus is making one here. But, but the way he makes it, I know gives us pause, because I know there are some of you going, okay, you're going to have to explain that one to me, because I want to hear this. First thing that you have to understand is the word choice that he uses doesn't mean what we call that word typically to mean. But before that, I'm going to back up and say what he, what he brought to light was what would be critically important 
to this audience. Understand the two audiences that are happening here. The audience in the actual story that's being shared and the audience that Luke is writing this to, because Luke is not writing in real time. Luke is not writing this as he sees it. Jesus is, okay, so he's walking up, and boy, he turns to the people, like a narrator of what's happening now. Jesus turns to the people, and the people shun. No. Remember, why did Luke choose to write his letter? Because he was wanting to convince his audience that what they had been taught can be trusted about Jesus. So everything he's writing is pointing to why you can trust what you've been taught about Jesus. He says, oh, excellent Theophilus, in the beginning of the book. So, but what was happening at that time, to those people, they would understand. Family in that what we would call Middle Eastern culture at that time was everything for you. It is, what, it is how you identified yourself. It is what gave you your status or your lack of it. It is where your support lied. It is where everything about you emanated from and surrounded you. You want to talk about family first. In this society, your family meant everything. As a matter of fact, without it, you could find yourself on the street, poor, without resources, without hope. So for him to turn around and to say, if you don't hate your family, And even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. I wonder how many people said, well, I guess I'm gone. Like, wait, hold on. What? What did, you, what did he just say? Did he just say what I thought he said? And some folk would have been like, yeah, okay. This is where we go left. See, but what he was doing, as we know, was talking about where you have your security as well as your identity. What he is saying here is hate is a comparison word. Compared to, and I said this last week, compared to your relationship with Jesus and the priority that it must take in your life, it will look like it almost as if you hate your family. No one else matters. He says, your allegiance to me must make your allegiance to that network, that alliance that supports you, look as if they don't even matter. He's not saying they don't matter. He's not saying treat them if, as if they don't matter because we have places all in Scripture that points us to how we must care for our families. We get a Scripture like if a man does not provide for his family, he is worse than an unbeliever. And I'm trying to figure out what's worse than an unbeliever. I haven't figured that one out yet because an unbeliever, not only is he apart from Christ, he is going to a lost eternity. What's worse than an unbeliever? So I know he's not talking about not caring for your family. He's making a comparison. In our society, we do something like that as well. We say family first. I'm just like, mm, I think I know what you mean, but that's dangerous. 
God says, no, 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 because there are some times where, where you identifying in the age of identifying, when you identifying as a believer, as a Christian, will cause you to be at odds with your family. And for some of us, we're like, mm, sorry, Lord, I can't do that. I ain't trying to make mama mad. Jesus said, you want mama to be mad or you want me to be mad? For some of us, we may have to call out some family, even if it's respectful, because of some things that we see that we know that are against God. We may have to make a stand against family because this is where God wants me to land. It's not because I made it up. It's because biblically, that's what it says. Some of us with our children, we'll get ourselves into all kind of trouble to help our children out in unbiblical ways. But if you are committed to family first, God says, where do I fit in? See, he says, the way to handle best your family is if I'm first. Is if your allegiance is with me and your alliance is with me. See, because that's where their network, he says, there can be no greater place of security in your life them with me is what Jesus is saying. When your security is in what your family can do for you, what they mean and what they are, ultimately, not that you don't do that, you do that, but ultimately, he says, you cannot, you cannot follow me. Why? Because there will come a point where you say, Jesus, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And he says, there can be no greater allegiance than me. Then he goes and says his next one about allegiance and alliances, which is is identity. He keeps that identity thing going on in his next one when he says, verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Second one. He says, you must not be embarrassed or be shamed by embracing the suffering of what it means to follow Christ. So what he's preparing them for is you may be at odds with your family, the closest, most supportive people, I mean, in the world for you, generally speaking. But then also you cannot be embarrassed about dealing with the sufferings and the shame, the ostracizing of being a follower of Christ, bearing your cross. He says, if the sufferings of Christ embarrass you, you aren't following. You're not. You're walking away. No, I'm not that. Man, they're crazy. Got me out here looking like a knucklehead. No, I'm not doing that. Because for many of us, it is at times we don't like the shame. But we get scriptures that says Jesus did not, in essence, he, he didn't despise being seen as shameful. Do you know crucifixion was one of the most shameful as well as painful ways to die. It was meant 
to put you, to publicly humiliate you as they slowly killed you. The whole purpose of crucifixion. Jewish people did not create that. The Roman mindset created it. And it was meant for the vilest of criminals. It was like our capital punishment. Now, remember, we've kind of now sanitized it some in that we give injections and you slowly. But there were times when there were firing squads and the electric chair. Now, I don't know if our whole point was to humiliate, but, this, but there was some open display of your death in that capital punishment. Crucifixion fit into that category. There was nothing nice about it. There was nothing heroic about it. There was nothing holy about it until Jesus came along. Because what he did, he took that shame and made it a symbol of salvation. So much so, it's interesting, I don't know why everyone does it, folk are wearing a symbol that publicly humiliated while they slowly killed you around your neck when you're wearing a cross. Because to a Roman, there was nothing cool about that. Jesus turned around and said, I'm not ashamed to do that. I'm not ashamed to be stripped down to my loincloth, to be publicly humiliated with two dudes that deserved it, that were there because of their actions. So he's saying for you and I to bear our cross, number one, that we are constantly dying daily because the way this is written, it is not a one-time event. When it says your allegiances and your alliances, it's ongoing. You are constantly putting Jesus before all of your allegiances and alliances, even the closest ones, even your own self-being. Put it this way, Luke 9, 23 through 25, that talks about what is it profit, what is it gain if you get, if it, what profit is it, profit is it, excuse me, if you gain the whole world and lose your soul, that was a gain-loss comparison. He says, what do you really gain if you gain, if you take temporary control of your life in this life because it's temporary because you will die. Let me just guarantee for every last one of us, unless there is some taking up by God, you will or we will all have some sort of funeral for all of us sitting in this room. No one escapes death. And so to be in control of your life, Temporarily, meaning till you die, you lose permanently in eternity. That's what that verse is saying. And so what he's saying for us as a disciple is, listen, you can have your allegiances and your alliances in this life, you know, to the disregard of following Christ. You can do that. And you know what? You may live it up big. There are some that will live it up big, living large. 
all kind of resources and success. I'm not going to sit here and go, well, that success doesn't feel good. No, nah, it feels good. That kind of life ain't pleasurable, whatever. They're enjoying it. Oh, they'll have their down times, but they have their up times. But it's temporary. It ain't lasting forever. And he said, go on and be in control of your own life for 70, 80, 90 years, if it even lasts that long. But you will lose for all eternity. Wow. He says, which one do you want? Or you want me in control of your life now, and you'll gain later. That's why that statement says, for the person that seeks to, to, to save his life will lose it. Well, yeah, you're saving it in your eyes now, doing what you want, captain of your own ship. Boom, death comes, you lose. And so he wants us to get into this picture of don't let all of life just be consumed in what you do here. Because what you do here is a part of your eternal existence. Because once you were born into this world, you became an eternal being. I've heard it said once this way, everyone lives forever. It's just a matter of where you're going to live forever. Everyone lives eternally. No one ceases to permanently exist and you just, you just, you just no longer there. So for the Christian, we live eternally, they don't. No, everyone lives eternally. It's just where you're going to live. And so he says, if you are going to be ashamed of the sufferings of what it means to be a believer and you can't handle that, you don't want it, he said you cannot be a disciple. Remember, disciple is not elite Christian. Disciple is Christian. And then he gives two examples, which it took me forever. Elder Wright, I was just like, okay, I was pulling every resource because I was just like, just help me understand this. Because is he saying that I start out with Christ and I don't finish? I start with Christ and I don't finish? Well, then, how, well, 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 you know, there are some people that look like they start out and then they don't finish. And were they really Christian or were they half Christian? But the more I looked and read and pulled in other resources to help me understand context and language, what I began to get was this. The two examples that's used, let's read them. He says, verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and it is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man, or some versions say this fellow, which is a derogatory term, began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks him for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Here's what he's saying. He said, look, I thought it was that I thought this is what being a Christian meant. 
um, until I found out what it meant, and then I decided I don't want that. That can be a part of it, but what he is really leading us to understand is he says your life can be like two different things. One is a big enterprise that you are embarking on. Building a tower, we didn't know at what level that we're building it, whether it's a small personal tower, which would still be expensive for that person, or this large you know, watchtower that would be expensive for even the wealthy person. The issue is that you are embarking on a huge enterprise that will take lots of resources, and you want to make sure you can finish. This is not saying make sure you got enough, like some sort of work-based salvation. No. Life is like a big enterprise, and you are trying to build something in it and out of it. What are you building? And do you have enough to build what you think you want to build? Oh, I know people that have amassed whole lots of things. Solomon built so much and turned around and said, it's all a waste of time. He said, it's vanity. What? Wait, hold on. What? You're hearing this from the rich guy. Please listen. See, we would call them the 1% because 1% of us make it there. And when the 1% turn around and say, it ain't worth it, here's what we say. Well, let me try. I bet you it'll be worth it. I'll be different. We all do that. Man, well, he fell. Well, that's him. He was crazy. I do it. You'd end up in the same boat. See, the issue becomes, what enterprise are you building on? He says, following Christ is like embarking on an enterprise, or life is like an enterprise. And he says, when you start to build, he said, you better make sure you have enough. But guess what? Outside of Christ, you never have enough to build what you're desirous of, because what you're seeking is fulfillment. You're seeking complete satisfaction. You're seeking complete purpose. And there isn't anything in this temporary world that's going to bring the permanent satisfaction that you're wired for in here. You and I were built to be, we were created to be satisfied fully and thoroughly. And the only way that was going to happen is by God himself doing it. And so he says there's nothing wrong with fulfilling dreams. And so you can have a career. You can have finances. You can have families and friends. You can build an enterprise, but that better not be the ultimate of your life because it will never come through for you. God says those things can be a part of the building enterprise, but they better not be the enterprise. Otherwise, folks can say, look at him. He thought he was, and he couldn't finish. Now, that does go to those who think they start in Christ and they get halfway, but it goes beyond that. What are you building? And can you finish what you think you are starting out to build? And I'll tell you, no, you can unless Christ is the one that is building it in you. Number two, 
He says the opposition in life. Many of us mis- misjudge. He says it's like a king that goes out to war. And look at the language. He said he sits down and thinks about if he with his 10,000 can overcome those with his 20. He puts him at a loss. He puts him overpowered. He says, you have to be able to determine if if your life is prepared to handle the onslaught of the opposition that you're going to face throughout it. Because you're going to face it from all sides. And if not, then you you come to terms and you ask for peace. There are several theologians that are saying that that terms of peace mean you come to God and say, God, I can't fight against you. I can't do nothing against you. I need terms, and you don't make them. The terms here is if you are an enemy and you know you are going to be overpowered, you come to the greater and say, look, I want terms of peace, and hear what they are. I said, man, please, we're about to run you over. You don't get to tell. They'll say, we need terms of peace. What you got? And what he's saying for you and I is that you realize, you realize in this life that you cannot overpower the opposition. You cannot even overpower God because you'll be opposed to him if you are the captain of your own ship and you say, God, I need terms because I need to be at peace with you. And he says, sure. So he says, unless you let me build your enterprise and you come to terms at peace with me, you can't be my disciple. That's why he makes that statement at the end. Renouncing doesn't mean that you sell it all and that it's the poverty that makes you a Christian. That is far from the truth. What he's saying is uh, you hold tight to nothing to the point where it gets in the way of your allegiance to Christ and following him the whole journey, even as it takes you to Jerusalem. Because after Jerusalem, where it is your death, you're going home. See, what he says to you and I is, you can enjoy all of these things actually, actually. You can actually get to enjoy that home. But that home can't be your ultimate joy. You can enjoy your family actually. You can. And he says, go and do it. But your family can't be ultimate for you. You can enjoy your career and earn money and status and all that. He says you can actually do that, but it cannot be ultimate for you. If it is, you don't have me. And so for you and I today, he says to us, are you willing to give it all up to gain even more? And that this sounds like it's hard. Jesus, let me just remind you as I close this, Jesus is far better. Following Jesus is far greater. It is far more meaningful than anything that you can latch on to here. He's not saying that you don't do it 
is that that is not the destination of your life. It is something that you do along the journey of following him, but that's not your journey. Go on and do your best in whatever it is. Go on and enjoy it. Sometimes you won't. But if God is ever calling you away and he pulls and you feel that pull, nah, God, I can't. You call me right as I'm really starting to enjoy it. Really? Because that's what we all fear. I'm going to get in the middle of this and the Lord's going to be like, okay, now it's time to go. Like he's just waiting for you to have them. Ah, 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 nope. No, see, God knows what is best. Will you entrust him to build? And will you come to him for terms of peace? Will you hold everything you own? family included, even though you don't own them, everything that is tagged yours, will you hold it loosely for the sake of completing the journey with Christ? And Christ says, it will be worth it. He says, I came, I come that you might have life. And that life would be to the full. That's what abundantly means. I know we think we have lots of stuff. It's not what he's talking about. That we would have it to the full. It would be full and meaningful. That peace that you're seeking, it is only coming to terms in Christ. That life of meaning and success that you're looking for, it is only with following Jesus. He says... What he does is so that your joy may be full. What are you going to do with that? Discipleship has demands. Are you going to accept those demands or are you going to live on your own terms? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you alone, oh God, wow. You alone are worth it. Lord, this is heavy because this hits on us in so many ways. I know it hits on me, and it, and it is convicting, Lord, and it is revealing, and it is sobering, and it is humbling, and yet it is exciting because, Jesus, you're the only one that gives complete meaning. None of these things can bear the weight of my happiness, not even my family. The only one, Lord, that makes me fully, deeply, thoroughly, and, and happy in a lasting way is following you where you are my ultimate. Father, I pray that we will learn to enjoy the things that you have provided for us. I pray that we will learn to enjoy the jobs and the friends and the houses, you know, and the education and the finances because those are what they were intended. But, Father, those eventually will get in the way at some point of who you are. And, Father, I pray that we will hold them so loosely that they will never get in the way. That, Father, if you say release, we release. If you say grab and enjoy, we really grab and enjoy. But, Father, I pray that we would not have any allegiance or alliance or any security greater than you, anything that secures us. And I pray, God, that, that we would not let any opposition 
deter us from following you. But I pray also, Lord, that we would come to terms. I pray also, Father, that we would bear our cross daily and that it would not be shameful to us, but we would with honor carry our cross knowing it is what you did and is what you call us to do. Even if we have to stand alone, even if we have to do something that many others say you're crazy for, when we know from your word that it is what you want us to do, I pray that we would do it and find joy in it. Father, help us to be joyful followers of yours following you to the end, heading into eternal. You've been listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast, and we trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at solidword.org. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next week.